So today we are continuing our series in the book of Revelation. Um, and so you can open up with me uh, to um, Revelations chapter 6 and 7. It's all the way at the end. Uh, you'll be able to find it. I'll have some of the uh, verses up here today, but when we get into seven, uh, I probably will not have, uh, have them up there, so I do want you to follow along. Um, the last two weeks in Revelation 6 and 7, we were studying chapters 4 and 5. We entered with John into the throne room. We saw all of the angelic creation and the 24 elders worshiping God praising him. We talked about how we were made and designed to worship, and whether it's God or something else, we are always going to choose to find something greater than ourselves to pour our lives into, but that we are only fulfilled and beautiful and find meaning and love and hope and grace in the things that we look for in this world when we worship the one true God that we were made to worship. And then last week, as we rolled into chapter five and we saw John taking in all of the heavenly hosts worshiping God, he notices that there's a scroll in the right hand of God. And this scroll symbolizes God's plan of judgment for the world. But before that scroll could be opened up, someone needed to be worthy to open it up. Just like in ancient times when a scroll had a seal on it, it was to be delivered to one special person and them alone. And it said John started to weep and he was weeping because if no one was found worthy to open the scroll, that means that there was no answer for sin and pain and suffering in this world. But as we read, one of the elders grabbed him and said, don't weep for the lamb of God is worthy. That Jesus Christ through his death and through his resurrection became worthy to open the scroll. Just like we sang about today. Jesus was the waymaker. Amen. Amen. You know, I don't believe in demon possession, but I'm starting to wonder. <laughs> I'm starting to wonder. It's gremlins. It's got to be gremlins. So what's going to happen this week is we're going to start to walk through chapters six and seven of Revelation, as I said, and we're going to see the, the unrolling of the scroll that marks the beginning of God's wrath and judgment on mankind. As the Lord begins the process of taking back creation from Satan. And what I'm going to do is we're going to walk through these passages in small chunks. I'm going to do my best to explain them because if you read ahead of time, there's a lot here. So we're going to do our best to slowly walk through this and then try to pull out uh, a, a few truths. So this is going to probably feel a little, maybe a little different than a, a normal message that I would preach. It's like half a theology class and, and, and a half a sermon. So uh, I pray that God uh, will pull out and show you exactly what it is you need to hear and see today. So starting here in chapter 6 of Revelation, verses 1 and 2. It says, now I watched, this is John speaking, when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. So the opening of the, the seals begins with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. 
Now, even if you're not a, a, a Bible person, you haven't spent a lot of time in church, you're probably familiar with this reference because it's used a lot in pop culture. In early football days, there was the, the, the four horsemen of, of Notre Dame. Uh, you wrestling fans will remember Ric Flair and the, the four horsemen of the WCW. There are a lot of four horsemen of the apocalypse songs written by heavy metal bands. Even Johnny Cash wrote one. You see it in Marvel Comics. And so all throughout uh, pop culture, you see these references to the four horsemen. And they're always pictured as real riders, which I, I guess they could be. But they could also just be seen as a symbolism uh, or as a, a force of God's activity here on earth in the end times. Once again, we have to walk very humbly when we're looking through Revelation. We have to hold very loosely all of our opinions and thoughts on the things that we read, and we have to hold very tightly to the meaning that is in these words and what it means for us today. Now, this first horseman was a rider on the white horse, on a white horse, and, and some some think that this is a reference to the Antichrist. And I'm not going to take a lot of time to explain who this is because he pops back up later in Revelation. But, but in short, the Antichrist is, is this end times like Messiah who promises like a, a golden age of peace and prosperity when the, when the, dur the world desperately wants it. And then he's going to seemingly bring that peace. And so the, the world's going to honor him and give him this crown, if you will, like it reads here, kind of elevate him to this position of, of supreme leadership within the world. So that's who some think this white rider is. But once again, since the other three riders are more like forces of activity of man and of nature, it's probably best to, to see this white rider the same way though I think it's a bet, safe bet to say that this rider or this force of peace will be ushered in partly by the Antichrist. And now you also see this white rider with a bow, which was a symbol of military strength and power in ancient times. And so even though there's this time of peace, there will be a time of war to follow. Well, military power will be used to secure rule in this world. It's like something that happened uh, similar, maybe so similar that some thought Hitler was the Antichrist. Uh, that happened before, uh, right before World War II. Um, uh, I like to study history. Um, I like to watch history even more, like you know the History Channel, because then you get to see pictures and video, which is always cool. Uh, but I remember watching this one documentary, and it was talking about how Adolf Hitler like a decade before the war began, he, he wrote that, that manifest, you know, Mein Kampf, where he kind of like, he spelled out all of his plans, all of his details, right? He, he did not hide it. He wasn't shy about it. And yet, incredibly, as, as Hitler rose to power, and I, and I wrote, read about this in, in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's um, uh, autobiography, that all the Western countries, or a majority of them, especially Britain and France, they all kind of persisted in this claim that he was really going to be a good guy, a guy of peace. And that's what he claimed, and they believed him. And, and almost everybody seemed to misread his intentions. And it was only after he invaded Poland in 39 that everybody like, oh, wait, never mind. But by then, it was way too late to avoid the catastrophe of World War II. And it seems that these riders, the way they lay out, it'll happen in a similar way. 
You see here in verse three, it says that when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And now came another horse that was bright red and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Now red is often associated with war and with bloodshed. And so this, when this red rider, this, red, this force is unleashed, there'll be war throughout the world and it'll be massive war. You see, it says he wasn't given just a sword, but a great sword, which magnifies the amount of war and damage that will take place in this world. And, it, and it'll probably be conventional war. But I was reading one writer and he said, if you, if you read it, it says, man will slay one another. He said, why do we think that's just country versus country? Even within countries, we see people rise up and slay one another. And we get these reminders on the news all of the time of how easy it is for man to rise up against each other for so many reasons, race and religion and, and wealth. And, and the list goes on and on and on. So it's not a stretch to see this happen. I mean, it, for me, like maybe I had my head in the sand, but even this war between Russia and Ukraine just like came up out of nowhere for me. See how quickly that the heart of man can turn to war and to murder and to killing. Well, during these final times of the earth, this will all be accelerated. Which leads us to the third horse. In verse five, he says, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, which I talked about a couple weeks ago, saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. <laughs> I had a pastor once read this and after he read this, he says, and all the Italians yelled, Amen. The best part was after he said that, someone yelled out, don't forget the Irish. <laughs> so the color black is often associated with famine. What comes along with war? Famine. And, and so basically, long story short, saying a man is going to have to work a day, a full day, just to feed himself for that day. And like, it already kind of feels like that when you go to the grocery store. Now, I'm not sure why oil and wine is left untouched. Uh, you know, it may be because uh, their roots go deeper in the ground, so they won't be touched by a drought or whatever brings on the famine. But for some reason, they're not affected the same way. I, we don't totally sure know what that means. But there'll be famine. So you have war, you have famine. And then you hear the next horse. Verse 7, when I heard, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature come, say, Come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given the authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth. It's hard to read these verses and give them the magnitude, the proper emotion to show the magnitude of what these times will be like. You 
you know, I was reading on this and, 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 and pestilence and disease, and it was interesting, and I never knew this before, uh, but I get on these tangents sometimes when I'm preaching and preparing that usually during war, that more people die from disease than they do from the actual war. I think they estimate in the Civil War up to, they think up to maybe now 750,000 people died in the Civil War and uh, that two-thirds of them died from disease uh, as opposed to just war and battle. You know, and it's easy to think if you're in, you're in a land that's it's ravaged by war and by famine where supplies are minimal, lots of people die and that disease is gonna spread quickly. As a side note, I had to laugh this week because I've never thought about stocking up on freeze-dried foods and stuff until I started doing these passages this week. <laughs> I, I'm, I'll just admit this. I'm on Thursday. Thursday, I'm on Amazon.com, and I'm like, how much for like space meals that are prepackaged that are like to carry? <laughs> oh, man. It says also death will come from wild beasts, which means you know uh, that a disease could be carried by animals. Remember in school, I learned about the bubonic plague that killed, a, what, I think, a third of Europe. Started by rats, 14th century, I think it was, 13th, 14th century. It could mean that as food gets scarce, that animals become more aggressive. It also, it's funny that this phrase, wild beast, is used in other places in Revelation, and it actually is referring to the Antichrist and his followers. Don't totally know. What we do know is things will be very bad. Far bad that I could put the words and that I could do justice to. So after the four horsemen, these four forces are unleashed upon the world, the fifth seal is opened in verse nine. He says, I saw under this altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So we have these people these Christians who, who seemingly had been murdered for their faith. And, and we're not sure if these are just Christians who died during this time of tribulation, or, or it's possible that this could symbolize all Christians who have died throughout time. It, it doesn't say. Uh, like I said, we gotta be real careful when walking through Revelation. It, we, and we, when we read Revelation, we like read it chapters one through 22, like it's all in chronological order, but there's a very rhythm to revelation of, of, of seeing earth and seeing heaven and seeing earth and seeing heaven. And, and it's not necessarily a chronological layout that we would read. So we have to be like, like very humble about this. Now there's some people who think like that these people who are crying out to God are only people who got saved after the rapture. Remember I talked about this in the church of Philadelphia. Um, that there is a belief in the evangelical church that started around the 1800s that Christians, right before all of this takes place, all before this, that they will be sucked out of the earth, saved from all of this tribulation. And I talked about the little bit more, so I, I think you go back to, to watch. Uh, and, and why some believe that, and it's very popular. When I read John, if that's something that's gonna happen, John knows nothing about it. He knows nothing about that. He knows nothing about a rapture of the church. I say, when you read scripture, I don't find very many times that God saves his people from suffering. 
He often saves his people through suffering. And so like my favorite phrase when it comes to the rapture, everybody believes there's a rapture. It's just, is there gonna be one before tribulation or is it gonna be one at the end of time? I always say, pray for pre, prepare for post. So Lord, I do not wanna go through pestilence and famine, but you need to prepare your hearts and mind that God may put you through that because you will play a role in bringing people to Christ. If you're alive, if it even happens. Either way, these souls seem to be having, and they seem to be aware in this moment of what is going on in the world. And they're like, how much longer are you gonna let this happen? And I actually, and we've been talking a lot about prayer. So I wanted to pause on this for a brief moment. I feel like we all can relate to this question sometimes in our lives. We're like, we watch the news. Like, have you watched the, the fallout of the, what, 20,000 people that are dead in Syria and Turkey? <laughs> you guys see that picture of that dad who's holding the hand of his daughter who died? And that's all that sticks out of the rubble is, is his daughter's, 15-year-old daughter's arm, and he's just sitting there holding her hand. It may be the most heartbreaking picture I've ever seen. And you're just like, God, how much longer will you let this happen? And I, and I don't think it's a bad prayer to pray. I don't think it's a bad question to ask because when we do that, we're, we're humble enough to say, God, I don't know what's going on. And we're taking our questions to the one who can answer them. And I think it reminds us that when we come before God, though we honor him as the creator of the heavens and the earth, we gotta be real with God. Our prayers should be real. Our struggles and our fears, they should be real when we come to God in prayer. Remember, when we put our faith in Christ, he adopts us as a son or daughter of God. He is our father. When my kids come to me and talk to me, I don't want this, you know, necessarily this big formal prayer where they're trying to be right before me and say the exact right things. I want them to share their hearts with me. And so I encourage you in your struggles with the things that are going on in your life and your world, Come to God with them. Say, God, what is going on? Amen, church? But I will also say that every time you see people pray that throughout Scripture, they kind of always end their prayers with, but I will trust in you. And this is kind of what God responds to him. He says here in verse 11, he says, they were each giving a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So God gives them white robes, and this is, symbolizes God's gift of righteousness and eternal life, the promise of eternity with him through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It does not necessarily mean that we're all gonna walk around in heaven in white robes. I mean, we could, doesn't say we won't, but this is what they wore back in those times. So John could relate to this. If, if John were alive today and he went to heaven, everybody might be wearing white suit jackets and white jeans, you know, only after spring, because I'm told that's only when you can wear white pants, you know, but we, we don't know. But there's a symbolism here. He says, rest. My plan is unfolding. The time is coming, but nothing can touch you anymore. Verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
The sky all vanished like a scroll that is rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So we see a great earthquake. It's seemingly unlike anyone we've seen before. And once again, the tragedy of Turkey and Syria makes this feel all the more real. And then it has this weird phrase that the earthquake is so devastating that the sun will turn black as a mourner's robe. That's what sackcloth means, which I have no idea what that means. Nobody does. There was one scientist, I think his last name was Morris, and he said uh, one of his ideas, theories, what, what it means here is that uh, whatever earthquake comes in the end times, that, that it would be so great that, that the fissures in the ground would open up uh, and that the smoke would be so thick, um, you know, and all the dust and everything that would come up, all the gases, they would cause the sun to be black or the moon to be red. You know, and if you ever, if, you know, I grew up in Washington State. You remember when seeing Mount St. Helens blow and what it did to the sky? It turned the sky black. It, it, it all over Washington State, ash fell, that it looked like snow. You know, and so it may be a reference to not the sun actually changing, the moon actually changing, but how we see them. You have to remember that in these moments, John has limited scientific knowledge, right? And so he's just describing what he sees, not never necessarily giving an explanation for why he sees it. It also says, out of the darkened sky came another disaster, that the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Now, the Greek word here can mean stars, right? But it also can mean other, other heavenly type bodies. Because if you think about it, the stars falling doesn't make sense because we're talking about other planets, right? If Jupiter fell to Earth, just, you know, Earth would be gone because it's tiny compared to it. So that doesn't make sense. And when we get into the trumpets, you'll see that the, the, there's, there's stars still in place. So the best guess here is that there is some kind of meteor shower that goes along with all of this, you know? Bruce Willis and his drilling team didn't start the asteroid, you know, like in Armageddon, you know, something like that. Or there's a completely different answer that we have no idea about. Once again, he's just saying what he sees. The point here that's important is that the events of the sixth seal are so devastating that they are attributed to God, like only God could cause all of this. Verse 15, it says, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? It's important. One thing I'm curious here is why these people are calling out for the rocks to fall on them and they're not calling out to Jesus for salvation. I don't know why that is, but it's interesting. And it's also important to note that this says kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, that none of that will deliver them from the judgments of God, which is ironic because what do we pursue in our lives? We pursue power positions of great importance. We pursue power. 
We pursue celebrity. We pursue money. And none of these things are the things that can save us. And often they're the things that prevent us from finding the one thing that can save us, Jesus Christ. And then the story continues in chapter 7. And I'm just going to, this isn't on the screen. I'm just going to read it out for you. Actually, no, this one I think is. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out, called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then over the next four verses, he lists all of the tribes, which I am not going to take the time to try to pronounce for you. You can do that on your own. So we have these 144,000 that are sealed. Now, long story short, there's a lot of difference on who these 144,000 are. And I'm not going to go into all the arguments because in the end, it does not matter. We'll find out when it does matter, and it doesn't impact how we live for Christ today. With that said, some believe that uh, these are Jewish believers that are fulfilling promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament, coming to life. Some also believe that um, they're a representation of, of the Christians in the church. We don't know. We're not even sure if 144,000 is an exact number. You see, oftentimes in scripture, numbers are used to communicate a truth. Like we see the number seven, we've seen in Revelation several times uh, to communicate completeness and perfection and fullness. And, and, and so the square rooted number here, it, it could be just a symbol of completeness or it could be exact number. We'll see the number again actually later in Revelation when it talks about the size of New Jerusalem. We'll see that we'll be there in a month or two. Whoever they are, they seem to have a seal, which, and we don't know what that means. Whether it's some kind of physical protection, it could be some kind of spiritual protection. Whatever it is, they are, it's almost like they're an army of God in the end times and they serve a purpose proclaiming his message and spreading the name of Christ. Now this gets us to the rest of Revelation 7, and this is the part I told you I would not have on the screen, so I just want you to hear my words. These are, these are awesome words. After this I, John, looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands. Palm branches often associated with deliverance and joy and celebration in the Bible. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? John said to him, sir, you know who they are. 
And the elder replied, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and they have made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. So what can we pull from these two chapters? It is a reminder for all of us that God is in control. God is sovereign even when evil seems to be running rampant. If you go back through this, you'll see that the, the red rider, he was permitted to do things. The pale horse, he was given the power that he had. The angels at the four corners of the earth were given power. When he was talking, when, when God replied to the cries of those who had been slain, he said, more are going to die until the appointed number is reached. A slap in the face to all those who would preach that God wants us wealthy and healthy in this life is the book of Revelation. You cannot read the Bible and under, not clearly understand that suffering is often used by God to fulfill his divine purposes. No greater suffering than, the Jesus, than Jesus Christ who filled the ultimate divine purpose and salvation for us from our sins. And this is what Christians needed to hear back then. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of a, a first century believer wondering what, what is going on when Nero decided to crucify scores of Christians after the fire of Rome in, I think, 64, 65 AD. When evil was abounding in the world, when, when we remember we did the letters, seven letters, where people were falling away from the faith and, and, and teaching the wrong things, it looked chaotic. It must have looked out of control. These visions are a vivid, vivid reminder that God is in control, that he is sovereign even over evil. This is his world. Never think for a moment when things are falling apart that this is not his world. He may not do things the way that we want them or in the time frame that we want them, but if we know anything about God, he's playing the long game. He's concerned about eternity more than he's concerned about the blip here on earth. He's concerned about saving us from our sins, not saving us from our suffering. So that means sometimes God's going to ask you to wait. He goes, you need to wait. And though we're not in his presence like those who were slain, we can wait with the same comfort that they do because of Jesus, because of the lamb who was slain. And it is amazing how when you have something to look to, how much stronger you become, how much more that you can endure, knowing that this is not the end. This uh, yesterday, I found this new worship song that I love. 
And I'm one of those people, are you like me? If you get a new song, you just play it on repeat for endless hours, right? You drive everybody else crazy, but you don't care because you just love the song. And it's called Keep My, Keep My Eyes Up. And it, and it says in one of the verses, it says, hope is burning through the dead of night. And it goes on to say, we have nothing to fear because your love overcame. So I will keep my eyes up. And so for those of you who have called upon the name of the Lord, if you live boldly for God, whether you're a part of the tribulation or not, you will face suffering. You will face resistance. You will face persecution. You will face punishment. It is my prayer that the reminder of him who sits on the throne will keep your eyes up. As you hear him say, just wait a little longer. And I also pray, though, that the understanding of what is coming in this world will wake us up. For there are far too many of us Christians that are walking around asleep. We walk around as if revelation will never come and take place. We walk around as if the judgment of God will not take place. We worry about our comfort, what we're going to do for the weekend. We worry about moving up in our positions and work. We worry about our kids and their sports programs and worry about our influence in the church or whatever we sow is important. But we're not worried about the judgment of God that is going to come for those who do not call upon him. I pray that this is a reminder to us that we must wake up. We must be like the 144,000, for we are sealed by the Holy Spirit to take his message of light into a dark world. I pray that that wakes you up today. Amen, church.